You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Riveting TV full of action, excitement, with shadowy characters of the darkest noir of 1950s America. Illegal acts told by the lawbreakers themselves, sometimes when they wanted to talk at all, or by those who tried to catch the lawbreakers, or by those criminal catchers who themselves became lawbreakers or looked the other way for a quick buck. And Hollywood didn't have to write a word of this TV story. It was Lights, Camera, Congressional Committee. show in town, Time Magazine said, about what would become the key Foffer Committee. An earnest, young Southerner, an honorable old New Englander, a former governor of Maryland, all taking in the stories of the underworld of America's cities. This is what the key Foffer Committee was doing. They went around the country, too, bringing the big bulbs of early television with them. Senator Kefauver, who in his last campaign had sported a coonskin cap, called it a national crusade. Senator Toby of New Hampshire shocked, shocked to discover gambling and crime in cities, lambasted witnesses who dared to take the Fifth Amendment, as many did. What is your net worth? I refuse to answer. In my intent to criminate me. But he directs that you uh, do answer, and uh, well, we understand that uh, his, his direction is made and refusal is made, I suppose so. Dice rollers, race fixers, hooligan hoodlums, and worse. Corrupt sheriffs all appeared before the committee in the hot lights. Gangsters before the committee learned quick to say, I refuse to answer that on the grounds that it might criminate me a phrase that was repeated by Americans throughout the country as the hearings were aired, a national meme. In New Orleans, the committee heard from bamboozled sheriffs who seemed shocked that a little gambling or prostitution would be so shocking to the rest of the country, or that so much of it was going on in their fair city. In St. Louis, the main gangster refused to talk, so they picked up any operatives that they could. KSDV wanted to turn the committee hearing off and get to shows that they could sell advertising with. But when they tried, the St. Louis TV station, their switchboard was jammed with viewers who wanted more of these hearings. In them, the police commissioner, English, just simply couldn't remember anything. How could one be a police officer and not remember any names? The committee said. In Detroit, 90% of the city's television sets were glued in the committee when they came to that city, as WWJ-TV and WJBK took losses to keep Kefauver's crime committee on the air. The committee picked up on anything amiss. The San Francisco lobbyist for the breweries had a million-dollar account to heap gifts on legislatures, but didn't keep records. In L.A., a handcuffed associate of Bugsy Siegel, a major mobster, appeared. They hurled accusations at him. Questions. Are you an associate of organized crime? Did you pay off policemen? Have you ever robbed anyone? Don't you control the docks? You are Frank Santella. 
Francesca. No. Ms. Holly Square, testimony given this committee shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. To give you our full name. At one point, committee counsel admonishes a witness. If you will keep taking the fifth, sir, why don't you just make up a little card and hold it up each time? Well, Senator Toby admonishes criminals that only Christ can save us. He was old and a little pedantic. Yet he got cheers from the crowd in the committee room. Save it for Betty Davis, the Hollywood reporter said about Toby. In Tampa, Florida, the committee discovered the corrupt Bolita syndicate who ran gambling op- operations in broad daylight. A sheriff there who lived on bribes was called by the syndicate Melonhead. He testified. That stuck with the TV audience. I refused to testify on the grounds that it might incriminate me. Kids were saying that in the schoolyard. In Las Vegas, criminals feared the committee, and when it came to town, they fled. So Kefauver had to interview whoever he could. Behind it all was serious business. There was really crime in America. There was really crime in cities. Um, a municipal association had asked Congress to do something. It had been difficult for the FBI, led by J. Edgar Hoover, to admit that crime networks in the city might be organized, that it wasn't just a few star bank robbers. This committee will bring about the public image of mobsters. It'll be influenced for Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola. Nobody thought much about all that when this new senator, this fluke hillbilly, who had beat the Memphis boss by campaigning with a raccoon, and then when the foolish boss had castigated young Kefauver, saying, you're just a pet coon for the Soviets. Kefauver turned it around and said, I'm a pet coon for nobody, and then started campaigning with that raccoon, and then put a coon hat on his head. I do uh, want to place additional emphasis upon the necessity of taking affirmative action in the effort against uh, corruption. David Helberstam writes, if he appeared something of a, a caricature, the hillbilly who came to Washington. In reality, Kefauver came from an extremely wealthy family in Tennessee, very privileged, and went to Yale. Someone joked, a reporter in the state, that they knew of many self-created highbrows, but Kefauver was the first self-created lowbrow they ever met. I want us to see the federal government take a more leading part, both Congress and the executive department and uh, leadership. Hardly adverse to publicity, but also principle. He was a rare Southern congressman before he became a senator to vote against the poll tax. And when he did, a Mississippi clearly racist segregationist congressman said, Estes, you should be ashamed of yourself. He took the criticism, considering where it was coming from, to the bank in his career. He was, in Halberstam's view, and David Halberstam's book, The 50s, covers this in so many great topics. Good book. The first political star of television. His little committee to look at crime was now a huge deal. A big issue in government at this time is uh, cleaning up any crime and corruption, taking leadership in the interest of uh, battle against the cartel. But he almost didn't even head it up. He needed the VP to break a tie to assign him to it. And then he decided to invite the TV cameras. This was 1951, and the medium was just taking off. Time for the Longines Chronoscope, a television journal of the important issues of the hour. 
Brought to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. A presentation of the Longines Whitnor Watch Company. Maker of Longines, the world's most honored watch. Our distinguished guest for this evening is the Honorable Estes Keefover, United States Senator from Tennessee. A few senators were annoyed. New York Times wrote an article, Democrats worried that the innocent might be persecuted along with the guilty. Truman wasn't pleased. Truman came from a Kansas city that had been under the control of a political boss. And he made his peace with it in different ways, sometimes bucking. He didn't like the direction this was going. When a Texas senator was asked where Kefauver was because he was late for a hearing, he said, probably chasing some crapshooters. And this was the attitude of some in the Senate. But in America, millions glued to TV, said the New York Times, shopping sags as the Kefauver hearings reached New York. The committee summons a former New York City mayor, now ambassador to Mexico, William O'Dwyer, and would find in their report that he failed to follow up on concrete evidence of crime in the city. This, this was the problem. Kefauver's committee was starting to find connections between politicians and many Democratic politicians, his own party, and organized crime. The real show, the committee's Mr. Big, was Frank Costello, the head of a major, largest crime family in New York, and also with some connections that they would seek out to Tammany Hall political organization. Costello knew the allegations against him, but in his view, he was just a businessman, a businessman in America, and that's all. And having seen all of the committee's activities, traveling to all those cities, and all of these people taking the fifth and looking very guilty, Costello, very proud man, wears nicely tailored suits, slicked back hair. He's going to be someone that Brando watches when he does that Godfather role. He saw how guilty those guys looked, and he didn't want He said, look, I will testify before this committee, and I'll actually talk. Except, he asked, please don't show my face. Chairman Kefauver could agree to that. Costello comes in, and there are photographs of him in his shiny suit, His raspy voice is heard by the viewers of WPIX and other stations in New York City. Costello starts with a statement. In America, a man is presumed innocent until proven guilty. And he accused the committee of releasing a report that already said he was the head of a family when that hadn't been proven and he hadn't even been talked to yet. He had cooperated, he said, so far with the committee. To which... Kefauver answered, your cooperation has been good, but that does not exonerate you. The committee council now dug in. They asked him if he had ever used the name Savino. I'm willing to admit I might have. The council Robert Haley fixed in. You're not willing to admit that you know very well you have used it? Why should I, Costello said. Isn't my answer good enough? Haley wanted to catch him lying about his citizenship application, and Costello probably knew that he was in a trap now, and that his decision to talk freely probably wasn't a good one. So he didn't talk so much. He gave very evasive, difficult answers. 
But the audience couldn't see Costello's face per the agreement he made with the committee. WPIX and the others could not show Costello's face. So they showed his hands. And he was fidgeting. Robert Haley now zones in states what is fact. Costello had used the name Savino and was convicted as a criminal 35 years ago under that name. So I'll ask again, did you use the name Savino? I probably did. Have you ever used the name Castiglia? Well, that's, uh, have I ever used it? Yes. That's since I've been in America. Did you use it before you came to America? Well, I couldn't have used it. I was only two years old. So you never used the name Castiglia? TV viewers are now watching the camera that goes from the council of the committee and the listening senators and then zips over to Costello's hands. He's not happy with the questions. Here's Halberstam again. Those hands relentlessly reflected Costello's tension and guilt, like hands tearing paper into shreds. They're moving around. Um, You can tell his hands are sweaty and that he's just constantly moving around his digits. It was the ballet of hands, the New York Times would say later. Committee thought they had something right there that they could probably use later. So were you involved in the liquor business? I don't believe so. When did you purchase smuggled liquor from Canada? I couldn't give you the precise time. 1929, maybe? Could it have been as early as 1922? It might have been, but I don't have any recollection. Again, the TV camera focuses on those hands, and he's now crumpling up a piece of paper, fumbling digits. Uh, later years. And the earlier years, too, you've already testified, have you not? No, I haven't. Well, we'll get to that. Uh, but you did uh, buy liquor in Canada? What's your net worth, Mr. Costello? I refuse to answer. I'm walk around. I'm going to exercise my right. Have you ever offered your services to any war effort of this country? No. Bearing in mind all that you've gained and received in wealth, what have you ever done for your country as a good citizen? Paid by tax. It goes on, and the next day, Costello isn't as willing to talk anymore as he was on that first day. He complains about the hot TV light. Keefe offer offers to have the lights turned off for him. His lawyer says no, he wants to postpone till Costello's better able to answer. Kefoffer says no, the committee's meeting now. We're in New York today. They cannot do that. And Halley just begins questioning. Under no condition will I testify. So herein, until I'm well enough. Uh, you refuse to testify further? Absolutely. I'm not going to answer another question. Am I a defendant, Costello says? No, Halley replies. Am I under arrest? No. Then I am walking out. Costello, head of a crime family, not able to take the heat, gets up and walks out. Keith Offer and Nobody is one of the most famous men in America now, right up there with the Holy Father, according to a magazine's poll. He ghostwrites a book about crime in America and seeks his party nomination, and he almost gets it. Except for one thing. 
in all this process. And the success that he'd have, he'd anger the president of his own party, who himself became well-known from holding a famous hearing. Inquiry, investigations, vital for any legislative body, serious, but at times, the ones conducting the investigation can be unaware of their own possibly menacing quality, or they can be very much aware of it, as we've seen both through history. It can be a bull in a china shop, at times showy, at times even biased. Ha, General, if I had your troops, I'd be able to whip the enemy army in 30 days. It was a quick comment, but one of the more unfortunate examples of congressional oversight gone badly, probably the example that defines that. In the hands of Ben Wade, a senator serving with two other senators, three House members, on the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War during the Civil War, inquiry could perhaps be substituted for superiority. I'd be able to whip the enemy army in 30 days. Wade, with no military experience previously, a politician from Ohio and an abolitionist, saw an opportunity to berate the nation's generals. He wanted slavery over, and he wanted that to happen quick. A lot of us in the United States today would see Wade as a hero, and there's many reasons why one should. The generals in the opinion of the Republicans in Congress at that time, were moving too slow. The commander-in-chief prepared too much. It was time to take Richmond and end this thing. Wade's committee starts with an incident on a mountain bluff in Virginia. Colonel Edwin Baker, not only a colonel, but also a politician and a friend to Lincoln, is sent out with 1,600 men to go find the Confederate camp that a Union scout was just sure that he saw. He hadn't seen any camp. We don't know what he saw. And so Baker's unit obviously couldn't find it. And then the process, they're going around and away and going to a very bad military location, finding themselves with a cliff's edge behind them and in front of them a forest. The Confederates are hiding in the woods, taking shots at their leisure, and the Union can barely respond. The hunter becomes the hunted. The accounts are dreadful. It rained bullets that day, bullets from nowhere. The first thing that happens is the commander, Colonel Baker, is hit and killed. Some of them have to run and jump off the cliff just to escape the bullets. Some do. Half the force is killed, captured, or wounded. Half the force. Congress wants answers. What happened here? And it's not only this one battle, but why the war in 1861 isn't yet over. On the northern side, the Union side, the Republicans in Congress thought that this war was supposed to be easy to accomplish. The rebellion put down in a few months 
It was true on the other side as well, the southern side, the Confederate side. The independence should have been granted after a few shots. That's what each side thought. One Confederate congressman offered to pay for the whole war. He thought it was going to be so short before they got their independence. At the same time, you see things like Horace Greeley, a newspaper editor, saying, take Richmond now, as if it was as easy as putting letters into type. Battles like Ball's Bluff, Congress thinks, are why generals are not fighting hard enough. And they don't want to take it to the South. They want to fight a little bit and then go back to the lines, maybe convincing them to stop the war. And to some degree, this was right. Something else. Many generals are Democrats. Republicans control the House and Senate. And they use a power that they have to investigate the branch that is managing the war. The legislative will investigate the executive. And they make it strong by making it a joint committee. Joint committee is both the House and the Senate. Usually, usually, when there's a joint committee for something, it's a pretty meaningful event. Benjamin Wade, as we mentioned, and Zachary Chandler make up the aggressive war section. Congressman Julian in the House from Indiana, some of, son of a famous abolitionist. These guys drove the scope of what was to be investigated. There are Democrats on the committee. Andrew Johnson, uh, not yet vice president, is on this committee in the beginning. And they do a mixture of adding to some of the committee's indiv- investigation, maybe trying to calm down the Republican colleagues a bit. But the control is with the Republican. You see, any suggestion, for instance, that this battle of Ball's Bluff might be Baker's fault for getting them into this situation is out of scope. Baker was a Republican general. Instead, they blame the Democratic general, Pomeroy. Though he has a very small role in the events and wasn't there on Ball's Bluff, he'll end up serving some time in jail and being discharged. Um, no one is safe. The Joint Committee's powers will examine generals, hauling them from the battlefield as needed to Washington, even the top commander, George B. McClellan. The committee will go to a cabinet meeting and ask Lincoln to fire McClellan. The committee's bias for head-on war, for fast taking of the South, is obvious. The members of the committee are not afraid of Lincoln, not afraid of the president. They're not big Lincoln fans in any case. Lincoln is more of a moderate Westerner Republican. They believe that the presidency is too big for him. Wade calls Lincoln a fool. They will have over 270 meetings, and the committee will last through the entire length of the war, supervising everything that the military is doing. For his part, Lincoln is exasperated by Congress. He tells the story of a man crossing the Niagara Falls with a great weight on his back. Would you shake his rope, he said? That's how he felt. But as determined as Wade and Chandler and Julian are, you know, we can't just say that it's a small group of people driving this. They are investigating matters that are being reported to their constituents and the constituents of their fellow Congress members in the majority of Congress in both houses in the newspapers. It's infuriating to the public that's loyal to the union. Not much discussed is the weakness that this added during the Civil War, to the Union side. It was a hand tied behind the back. So for all the material benefits that the Union side had in the Civil War, which were great for the financial benefits, the greater amount of banks and railroads, say, greater amount of population, say, 
this is a deficit that's not often talked about, politics. It's different on the Confederate side. Phil Leach, uh, New York Times, writes about Robert E. Lee, where many victorious generals before him had let power go to his head. Lee respected civilian control of the government. After Gettysburg, he offers to resign. And Jefferson Davis, his boss, says, to ask that is to demand an impossibility. It wasn't like there was no criticism of Lee and Richmond at all, but it wasn't this type of investigation by committee that the president couldn't control. I mean, that's something to look at when we examine Lincoln's presidency. It's not necessarily his fault what Congress does, but he was unable to control those politics. He had very little influence in Congress, and that hurt the war effort. That support was not granted to Union generals that Lee got. Lincoln couldn't save him, didn't have political muscle. The Union cited politics to deal with. This committee was also uh, was micromanaging, but also micromanaging was the cabinet and War Secretary Edwin Stanton. Between these two, generals had to make very conservative decisions about what they would do. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yet what's supposed to happen, right? We can talk about this joint committee for the conduct of the war really seen as an investigation gone awry. There's a few good things, and we'll talk about that later. But um, what else is supposed to happen? Ostensibly, the Civil War was a war fought by two democracies. Now, Confederacy has, you have serious problems calling that a democracy, um, and and uh, and all of that because of uh, the population that's enslaved. Uh, but they do have a Congress and representatives. But in the North, at least, you have a democracy conducting a war. What else is a republic to do? Elected, empowered people's representatives, are they to sit on their hands and just say, go Lincoln? It's not going to happen. There's nothing in the Constitution that specifically says that the Congress can investigate, but that's true of so many things in the Constitution and that are parts of daily American political life. The Committee of Detail that wrote most of the language of the Constitution has a statement that they wrote it short so that it could be interpreted later. And this is just one of those things. It does say in the Constitution that all legislative powers are granted to Congress. Parliament, part of their legislative powers that they have in Great Britain, is the power to hold investigations and hearings. After all, 
If you're not going to investigate anything or gather any information, how can you make good laws? What are you fixing after all? The first investigative committee of Congress was also the result of a military disaster, St. Clair's defeat at the hand of American Indians, 650 Americans killed or wounded. Counts come back to the capital at that time, Philadelphia. Horrible butchery. A signal to the British and the Indian nations that this new American nation was weak. After the defeat, General St. Clair welcomes an inquiry in regards to his generalship. He wants Congress to look at this, or someone to look at this. He asks, actually, for a court-martial. In particular, he wants the actions of higher-ups to be revealed. The House conducts an investigation. They're going to eventually find that it's the quartermaster, General Hogden, who is appointed in March, and he sits around until June 4th. And he doesn't get to Fort Washington, where St. Clair is, to help out with supplies until September 1791, leaving St. Clair to do his own quartermastering and leaving badly moraled and badly equipped troops The House is a little confused about what to do in this situation. Should we just let it go to the court-martial? A lot of the generals were out west and could not be brought back to Philadelphia for the process. And besides, there's questions about what they should do. They decide to ask the Washington administration for documents. It's not just automatic. At first, they say, well, maybe we could just ask President Washington, can you investigate? And here an important moment happens. A congressman from Delaware, John Vining, gets up and says, wait, you want the president to investigate himself? If something's wrong, it's our job under this new constitution to impeach. How can we impeach when we don't investigate? That's a power granted to the House, not the executive. South Carolina's William Smith says the military is part of the executive branch. So it's a conflict of interest for President Washington to investigate the military. James Madison, as he was known to do, strikes a balance. You know, a court-martial is probably the right thing here. But because of the practical problems, we can't do a court-martial. It's not going to happen. They then ask Washington for documents so they can complete the investigation. They don't have the information. It was all done by the Secretary of War. There's elements of the Secretary of Treasury. Washington confers with the cabinet. What should we do here? And it's agreed that they should comply with such papers as the public good would permit. But departments should keep original documents. A house clerk can come to the departments, make copies, or, as it turned out, watch as the department clerks would make copies of relevant documents. With that informal process, what's created? Executive privilege. The ability of the president to say, well, wait, I know you have your legislative investigation that you need to conduct, but I also need to preserve my privileges because my branch has different functions than yours and we're supposed to be separate. Okay. And we can assume if it's a Washington decision at this time that a lot of folks were involved, but it's going to be Knox, Hamilton, Jefferson, maybe Randolph that he's consulting with. As we indicated, the result of that investigation is that St. Clair was, as a general, was found um, not only not shown to be incompetent, but actually hailed as a hero. And the 
executive branch, the Secretary of War, the Secretary of the Treasury bore the blame. All in all, it goes pretty well. Everyone cooperates, Knox, General Sinclair, but that's not always the case. When the House later, three years later, investigates what is a scheme to bribe members, they don't have a willing witness this time. They can't get the information. They have to use their subpoena power. Robert Randall, a real estate investor who wanted to purchase what is now Michigan and sell it and bring Congress in on the deal and had made efforts to compensate congressmen for that. That comes under investigation of Congress. They subpoena him. He refuses. The sergeant-at-arms finds him, Philadelphia, and puts him in jail just for a day. But it sends a message. This is no joke. When Congress summons, you have to come. Congress does something, though. It decides that this subpoena power and the use of the sergeant-at-arms should only be used for legislative matters, not general enforcement of the law. There's other people to do that. That's not Congress's job. Just legislative matters. You won't cooperate with an investigation, and you don't have a valid excuse. I don't have to tell you why we're talking about this topic today. Obviously, there's a very publicized House investigation, probably the most publicized House investigation that I can think of. I mean, there were a few during the Obama administration, if you want to talk fast and furious and things like that, that uh, had some had some teeth. But I think the public impact of it, you haven't seen since Clinton administration, Clinton impeachment, Clinton uh, Whitewater investigation. High ratings, but also you see the use of that subpoena power and the calling of witnesses and the use of contempt of Congress charges, uh, most notably on Steve Bannon. For those who don't testify, we can't have people lying to Congress. We can't have people denying information to Congress, though it certainly happens, because that would lead to bad laws, right? If you have bad information, you're making bad laws. What are you fixing if it's wrong? Um, you can't have Congress being ill-informed about various procedures, because although there's a high amount of lawyers in Congress, and I think um, if there's any criticism to be made, sometimes they like these type of things because it puts them back in their experience. But not every congressperson is a lawyer, so you have to have counsel present. And besides, even the lawyers, they might they might be a real estate lawyer or something like that and not as familiar with a procedure, an inquiry procedure. So the Congress starts to look a lot like the courts with lawyers next to them and asking questions and sitting at a dais and questioning witnesses Congress doesn't invent this whole thing. I mean, this is something that's very routine in Parliament. For St. Clair, it was extremely useful because rather than just public reputation being soiled or the newspapers being the judge, Congress came to the defense of him. Not so much with the Joint Committee on the War. McClellan was harangued on how long his preparations and even his strategy in adopting a peninsular campaign where he was going to use an amphibious assault, he's going to land troops on the Virginia Peninsula and march to Richmond that way instead of going straight across. The committee found that his strategy was wrong. Few of them had any military experience. There's some good that the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War does. It's not all wrong. They examine the situation of Union POWs and are bringing that issue to light. They scold generals for 
poor treatment of Indians. They find corruption in the quartermastering and deal with that. They meet 272 times over four years. They visit sites of battles. There's a lot of work done by this committee. And mostly, it's a negative for the union cause. One famous head of a committee is going to specifically cite the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War as what he didn't want. And that person is Harry Truman, and we're going to talk about that. But it's easy to throw rocks at things in history and not to see the 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 present as it occurred with them. William Pitt Fessett, Maine, said, We see things being done that we don't approve of. We need an explanation which will satisfy the people. Unlike today's hearings, the Joint Committee was a secret meeting, though there were leaks, when General Fremont a general that Wade and the others on the committee would favor when he testified. The committee liked him and newspapers had his whole testimony. But you see in there that another reason why congressional committees also have an element of explaining to the public. The current 435 members of Congress have to go out and do that. They're supposed to be representative. They're also supposed to be knowledged about what's going on so that they can inform constituents. Without these investigations, they're unable to do it. If something's ajar, for example, in this case, there was a feeling that the executive branch, and and by that I mean the generals, the military, and and the consensus in early 1861 of generals like, say, McClellan, was that you were going to fight more of a conciliatory war, not a scorched earth war, and convince our brother South to come back into the Union. Agree with it or not, I mean, that war became bloody. It went on longer. If you just took a poll of Northern opinion, these were, these were the views of these congressmen questioning generals were not wrong. So wherever you have something awry, where public opinion is at a gap with what's going on or what the executive branch is doing, a congressional investigation would appear to make a lot of sense. You know, we would hope it's conducted in a nonpartisan way, and we would hope that it has the ability to, as it did with St. Clair, say, to shine a lot of light on things and even show the public that maybe your opinion of what happened is not all the facts. Not so good was the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War's investigation of the Gettysburg Battle used as a chance by Daniel Sickles, who had done questionable actions on the battlefield that almost lost the battle, to accuse the winning general, General Meade, of mismanaging the battle. The committee's report, it is well accepted by historians, does not match the events of that day. Sickles got to almost write it and cover up his blunder. The committee reinforced simplistic notions of warfare, says Bruce Tapp writing about these events later. Scorched earth policies, go after the opponent, keep on the attack, things like that, that were getting Union soldiers butchered. Uh, Tap also notes that Lincoln, on the other hand, was learning, you know, maybe in 1861, didn't immediately get it, but then was learning that you have to, to win this war, assault the Confederacy from all sides, instead of just one big attack on one line, 
assault at multiple points. The Congressional Committee never seemed to got that lesson. It was bad that a, that a former soldier turned senator put in charge of a committee 80 years later, specifically cited the Joint Committee of the Conduct of Wars, what he didn't want to do. No second guessing. What he did want to do is look at government waste. And uh, we investigated everything under the sun. And we finally got to the point where the members of the government, including the president and General Marshall and all the rest of them, had very great confidence in that committee. As a haberdasher, small businessman, he saw that all of the spending going on in the war, and this is 1941 before war is declared, but we're still lend-lease and assisting Britain and Brazil and other allies. All of this war spending seems to be going to big business. It's making big men bigger, Harry Truman thinks. We have to investigate it. The Senate agrees. And the Special Committee to Investigate the National Defense Program is set up. Truman will end up serving from 1941 till 1944. In a radio address, Truman said, when people create delays for their own profit, when they sell poor product for defense, when they cheat on price and quality, they aren't any different from a draft dodger. Truman over the radio does something novel, asks average Americans to write to his committee if something was wrong, if they saw some waste in military spending. There's a lot of people working in this industry, and they have a lot of family members. Truman got a ton of letters and became very well known. But he had to be clear that the nature of the Congressional Committee had suffered violence, he said, at the hands of some who did not appreciate the proper function of the committee. A committee, he said, should be a benevolent policeman. Nothing more. When I first started, the president didn't think it was any good. And he didn't give it any support or any uh, house, whatever. But after he had made two or three reports, he changed his mind. And he got to the point, so he'd call me up and ask me to come down to the White House. And I'd go down there. And I'd say, Mr. President, what's on your mind? And he'd say, so-and-so over here is upsetting the apple cart. We're trying to do something with him without ourselves upsetting the apple cart. I want you to get after him. Well, I'd usually get after him and we'd straighten him out. He didn't have to do anything or just have somebody say that good-for-nothing Truman's going to come and investigate you and then they'd do the right thing. And that's all there was to it. The Marble Caucus Room, 318 of the Senate Office Building, where Truman conducted his hearings, became the focus of much of the press. Truman made the cover of Time, March 1943. It said, The fox-faced little senator, with a set jaw and a determined look, was saving taxpayers billions and exposing shoddy products sent over to our boys. Truman thought the cover made him look old and was skeptical about the press. Time and life came to see me. Ain't it awful? The Saturday Evening Post. Click, click. What can I do? Senator started asking Truman if he'd like to replace Wallace as vice president. Truman told his wife. He replied with one syllable. No. I'd rather not move into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue through the back door, he said. But that's exactly what would happen. My investigating committee is getting really hot, he writes to his wife Bess on March 1941. 1940, $10 billion had been spent on defense, and Truman had visited numerous defense camps at Fort Leonard Wood in southern Missouri, for instance. Materials were stolen. There were idle workers. There were big costs. Same around the nation. I have had considerable experience in letters, public contracts, and I have never... You, know, you have to remember, Truman used to run a county. 
and I have never found a contractor who, if not watched, if not watched, would not leave the government holding the bag. Now, the creation of this Truman Committee is interesting, and it's something to be said about the potentially partisan nature of any congressional investigating committee. They're created by politics. In this case, if you're looking at the politics in 1940, Truman is a member of the Democratic Party. Franklin Roosevelt is president. But we are at the point post-primary purge in 1938. We are when we're not sure if Franklin Roosevelt's running for a third term yet. And FDR just can't wave away Congress the way he could in the beginning of his first years. And so Truman assures the White House that he will have responsible cooperation. FDR talks with Jimmy Burns, his kind of right-hand man right now in the Senate. Better than getting an unfriendly senator, Burns and FDR thought. Let's have Truman do it. Because otherwise we're going to get someone who doesn't like us. Truman's investigator was Hugh Fulton, Attorney General Robert Jackson's best investigator. He looked into everything, unions as well as management involved in military contracts. He didn't like work stoppages. Truman would tell unions to end strikes. He'd haul union leaders before the committee. He did that with a big shipyard strike and a cold strike. Coal strike. Truman's committee looked at sagging aluminum production and insisted it improve and criticized FDR's Office of Production. Look at how much aluminum Germany is producing versus us. He also took on the companies, Alcoa, for instance, who he thought was having limited production in order to reduce competition. An Air Force inspector who complains about the quality of engine parts produced by a company he worked for, Wright Aeronautical, says, when I protested about the roughness of these bearings, I was told during the war we couldn't be too choosy. Another army official says that three ready-to-ship engines on a loading dock, when disassembled, were found to be in such condition that they could not have been installed on an airplane. And employees described how plant managers intentionally misplaced paperwork that would identify any bad parts in order to pass them off as usable. The Roosevelt administration sets up the War Production Board, the WBP, to deal with some of the things that Truman's committee is bringing up. But the creation of a new board does not solve the problem. Truman's committee has to now look at the WPB. And it suspects that members of the board are continuing to draw salaries from the nation's largest corporations, unable to divorce themselves from their subconscious gravitation to their own industries. And their loyalties are delaying maximum war production. The concept of bringing maximum efficiency to the war effort by involving tens of thousands of small enterprises was never feasible, said one historian, about what Truman wanted. War made big manufacturing bigger. Truth was coming from the committee, though, mostly, that you wouldn't be able to get, I think, largely, from an executive committee. The, the press really likes the Truman Committee for this reason. Here's one reporter, Alan Drury. The chairman is a fine fellow, heavy lensed glasses, a quick, good-humored smile, presiding like a trim, keen-minded businessman. Defense contracts should be spread across the country, he asserted. The little fellow is being rooked. All of this, this questioning congressional committee, although it was getting popular, the administration doesn't like it. After Pearl Harbor, the Secretary of War asked the committee to disband. And he makes the case to Roosevelt. Truman's committee is not fully without compromises. 
He supported cotton, for instance, over rayon. That would have been competitive to some of his Missouri farmer constituents. He would attack DuPont, the maker of rayon. He'd attack big business, Rockefeller. That was good for his politics. Overall backed small businesses. That's where he came from versus big chemical companies that could, in some cases, offer more efficient pricing. He never took on the president by name at all, although he did criticize executive departments. A report absolved Senator Happy Chandler, a friend of Truman's, of any corrupt attempt. A defense contractor had built him of any corrupt intent, though a defense contractor had built him a swimming pool. And he's revealing Secrets that are going to help America eventually when it enters World War II. Plane production was lagging. Companies were providing broken B-29 bomber models and also unusable tank lifter ships. The ships you would use to bring tanks, say, over a channel for D-Day. Pretty important stuff. Because they had picked one vendor over another. The Truman Committee got that reversed. An inefficient shipyard in Savannah was flagged and noted by the committee due to a payoff that had occurred. Faulty engines were being made at an Ohio manufacturing plant. These are the type of things Truman sees. Truman makes the cover of Time magazine. There is, um, you can make a connection between this Truman Committee and the choice of Truman as FDR's running mate in 1944. I don't believe it's the only factor, but it's definitely there. Although Truman makes his career investigating, it doesn't mean he likes every congressional investigation or investigator. When another senator, 10 years later, would set his sights on looking at racketeers, organized crime, at the behest of thousands of municipalities that ask Congress to please investigate organized crime, it's it's hurting our cities. He would accuse that senator of grandstanding. He would call Estes Kefauver intellectually dishonest and ignorant of the history of this country. Truman deliberately mispronounced his name. Cow fever, he called him. America disagreed, though. They were watching, glued to their sets, watching Kefauver, thanks to a new medium. The reason for an episode at this time, as we said, is obvious. The January 6th hearings are continuing. They are very public. There are shocking disclosures from these congressional committees. Um, I want to say, so it's very clear, because January 6th gets people really riled up, um, and it should. It deserves investigation. The incident of January 6th, the very building that Congress is in, is broached. Not just by like one person, which would require investigation too, but by a lot. It's during an important congressional constitutional process. There is no question that it is deserving of congressional investigation and that having a January 6th committee is valid. Uh, Investigations are to inform the public as well as Congress. So even making an investigation public, there's a rich precedent of history for that. James Wilson in 1774, said, The Congress are the grand inquisitors of the realm, exposing the country to the truth of a particular point. 
That's not to say it's not a tricky balance at times. That's not to say that a lot doesn't get in the way because congressmen are elected, which makes them politicians. And when, what, where something is exposed can obviously be manipulated by one party. What is chosen to be investigated can be manipulated by one party. Those are all questions that's reasonable for voters, um, pundits to ask and watch. And just as there's a rich history of congressional investigation, there's a rich history of regretting some of them or in questioning investigations later for going too far. The House on American Activities is one of the obvious ones. Yes, they were right on Alger Hiss and some other cases. Certainly, they were wrong on a lot of others. And it's they use their investigating power to target, defame average ordinary American citizens, ruin their careers. That House on American Committee, we often think about Richard Nixon or other senators from the 40s or 50s, but it gets its roots in a committee headed by Texas Congressman Martin Dice. And the Dice Committee occurs in the 30s, and it's designed to investigate disloyalty and subversive activities on the part of private citizens, including public employees and anyone suspected of having communist or fascist ties. They're allegedly starting to look at the Klan and at Nazis operating in America or Italian fascists operating in America, but seem to spend all of their time on the communist side. They're harassing artists, the member of the federal, um, the, the head of the federal theater project is questioned. They question whether the War Relocation Authority is coddling Japanese Americans who are in the internment camps, right? We now see this as a great uh, harm done to Japanese American people at the time. Dies saying they're getting off easy and that there's all kinds of Japanese spies and the WRA is doing nothing. They're just coddling these people. Our unemployment problem was transferred to the United States from foreign lands. And if we had... In 1938, Dyes' committee is criticized for including Shirley Temple, who's then 10 years old, on a list of Hollywood figures who should be investigated because they sent greetings to a leftist, communist-owned newspaper. Uh, Michigan Governor Frank Murphy is defeated after the committee labels him communist or communist dupe. This was very common. If they couldn't pin somebody being an active communist, Dyes would say, well, the Communist Party relies on the carelessness or indifference of thousands of citizens. He's going to get pushback, Martin Dyes, in this case, for using the committee to further personal campaigns, to undermine the New Deal and FDR. He writes a book, The Trojan Horse in America, on this topic. Dyes is a critic to the CIO, precursor to the AFL-CIO. The CIO is going to... begin a voter registration drive in Texas, and they're going to both defeat him in his attempt to run for Senate in 1941, and eventually he's defeated as a congressman in 1944. So there was a backlash to Dice's activities. He does get back into the House, but he's not able to be, uh, become senator again, and uh, he retires from the House in 59. Largely, largely, the backlash is public, and the Dice Committee is seen as having gone too far, but they never crucially get rid of the House Un-Americans Committee. That is the official name of the committee, and that goes on. You know, I've seen you a lot of times before. 
remember uh, parochial school out of Paluski Street? Seven, eight years ago, you had, had your hair... Gray. Uh, looked like a hunk of rope. You had wires on your teeth and glasses and everything. It was really a mess. I can get home all right now. In 1954, the town of Hoboken, New Jersey, was taken over for 36 days by a film crew. It was a fast shooting of a movie. And the movie was going to say something about crime, specifically about a gang controlling the waterfront in New York City. Because those gangs still control the waterfronts in New York City, it was easier to film across the river in Hoboken, New Jersey. And Hoboken's favorite son... Singer Frank Sinatra was designated for the role. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. I know I get sore. I'm just kidding a little bit. I just mean to tell you the truth. It grew up very nice. Thanks. But the director and Carl Malden, one of the actors consulted by him, settled on the brusque Marlon Brando as the character of Terry Mallow. The story is believed to be based on the story of Tony Mike DiVincenzo, who had a big influence in the film nonetheless. Bud Schulberg, who wrote On the Waterfront, spent a lot of time in Hoboken, hanging out in waterfront bars, following developments in crime stories. Tony Mike boldly 
and plainly spoke out against corruption to the New York Commission. A little thing that, uh, a side note there, that one of the things congressional committees do is to beget uh, state committees. You had state un-American activities investigations, and you had state crime commissions after the Kiefhofer Commission, with the big one being in New York. And that's what exposed the gang on the waterfront. Here's what the Hoboken Historical Museum says, barely recognizable from today's waterfront, with its upscale buildings and picturesque parks. Hoboken's waterfront in the 1950s was a working port where longshoremen would daily shape up to be selected for jobs by a mob-connected hiring boss. The sounds and backgrounds captured by the filmmakers help immerse the viewer in the story in a way that would have been difficult to create an isolated soundstage. They used real people in Hoboken. Police officers in the film were real members of the Hoboken Police Department. There's an officer, Pete King, that restrains Johnny Friendly in the courtroom. He's a real police officer. Tommy Hanley, Hoboken resident at at the time, was 13 years old when he noticed a crew working on the roof of his apartment building on Hudson Street, Hoboken. When he went to investigate, he found men setting up a pigeon coop for a movie they were making, and he was hired to feed the pigeons. It hit home because... Hanley long believed that his own father had been murdered by waterfront gangsters. When hearing the story, Kazan and Schulberg decided to cast Hanley as Tommy, a young friend of Terry Malloy who looks after the pigeon coop. Hanley later became a longshoreman and held the job till 2009. It was filmed at the docks, the workers' housing, some of which is now very expensive housing in the city, row houses, the parks, the church, they're still there in Waterfront, uh, in the movie On the Waterfront, all still there in Oboken. Filming was in the winter, and it was cold. It's, it's, it's colder by the water there, by the Hudson River. Oh, are you kidding me? Come on, I better get you home. There's too many guys around here with only one thing in their mind. Am I going to see you again? This popular movie, recognized as one of the classics, is intertwined with a congressional committee. And that's the House on American Activities Committee, because its director testified before that committee. Very controversial two days. Kazan named names in his testimony. He was a friendly witness. Kazan had been a Communist Party member. He quit the organization in 1935. And for testifying against his actor friends, his director and writer friends, he was shunned by many. And so that image of Terry Malloy, the stevedore that Marlon Brando plays and sticks it to the mob and testifies, turns against them. He was telling the story of an informer, that an informer is not so bad. 
It has everything to do with his testimony. He revealed later, I was the parallel of the story. He didn't admit that at first. He admitted it later. When Brando says, I'm glad what I done. You hear me? I'm glad what I done. You hear me? That was me, Kazan said, with identical heat. I've been snubbed by friends each and every day for months in my own show business, my old show business haunts. And I never forgave them for it. Well, they never forgave him. As late as 1999, when the Academy Awards wanted to give him a Lifetime Achievement Award, his testimony would engender protest then. Sean Penn, whose own father had been ruined for union organizing during the time of the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings, took out a full-page ad in Daily Variety protesting it. Ed Asner joined him. Hundreds were there at the awards, and many people did not get up. During the ovation, actor Nick Nolte's one of them who famously did not get up or clap during the ovation for Kazan. As Arthur Miller said of Kazan, the public exposure of a bunch of actors who had not been politically connected for years would never push one single Russian out of Warsaw or Budapest. Kazan felt pretty strongly about it. He hated communists. He grew to hate them. Kazan, it was argued, though, could have worked in Broadway, even if he had testified. It was largely unaffected by the 50s Red Scare, but he would have been finished in Hollywood if he did not testify. Anyone who who took the fifth would be on a blacklist. Kazan gave the name of eight actors, writers, various people who were communists, among them Paula Strausberg, Clifford Odets. He was the writer of Waiting for Lefty about Depression-era activism. Kazan had appeared as an actor an activist cab driver, in his play. They would have been revealed anyway, he told Miller. I hated communists, and I didn't want to give up my career to help them. From History.com, particularly after 1947, HUAC assumed new heights of prominence. The committee conducted a series of high-profile hearings alleging that communists disloyal to the United States had infiltrated government schools in the entertainment industry. Here's Arthur Miller testifying before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1956. This is just a snippet of it. Tell us, if you please, sir, about these meetings with the Communist Party writers which you said you attended in New York City. I was by then a well-known writer. I have written All My Sons in a novel focus and a book of reportage about Ernie Pyle and my work with him on attempting to make the picture the story of G.I. Joe. I did research for that, so by the time I was quite well-known, and I attended these meetings in order to locate my ideas Who occasioned your presence? I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Can you tell us who was there when you walked in the room? Miller answers. Mr. Chairman, I understand the philosophy behind this question. I want you to understand mine. When I say this, I want you to understand. I'm not protecting a communist or the Communist Party. I'm trying to, and I will, protect my sense of myself. I could not use the name of another person and bring trouble on him. These were writers, poets, as far as I could see. And the life of a writer, despite what it sometimes seems, is pretty tough. I couldn't make it any tougher for anybody. I ask you not to ask me that question. I will tell you anything about myself, as I have. These were Communist Party meetings, were they not? I will be perfectly frank with you. In anything relating to my activities, I take responsibility for everything I have ever done. 
but cannot take a responsibility for another human being. Mr. Chairman, I respectively suggest that the witness be ordered and directed to answer the question as to who it was that he saw at these meetings. You are directed to answer the question, Mr. Miller. May I confer with my attorney for a moment? He does. Mr. Walter, could I ask you to postpone this question until the testimony is completed? There is a question before the witness, namely to give the names of those individuals who were present at the Communist Party meeting of communist writers. There's a direction on the part of the chairman to answer the question. Now, so the record may be clear, I think we should say to the witness, witness, would you listen? We do not accept the reasons you gave for refusing to answer the question, and that is the opinion of the committee, that if you do not answer the question, you're placing yourself in contempt. Was Mr. Arnaud Dussault chairman of this meeting of the Communist Party writers which took place in 1947, at which you were in attendance? Mr. Miller replies, All I can say, sir, is that my conscience will not permit me to use the name of another person. And my counsel advises me there's no relevance between this question and the question of whether I should have a passport or there should be passport legislation in 1956. Mr. Chairman, I respectfully suggest that the witness be ordered and directed to answer the question. I've given you my answer, sir. I ask you now whether Sue Warren was in attendance. I've given you my answer. Did you decline to answer the question? I tell you, sir, that I have given my answer. I'm not satisfied with that. That's entirely too vague. Sir, I believe I have given you the answer that I must give. And this goes on and on, and so this is how Arthur Miller is treated by this committee. Critics claim that the HUAC tactics, subpoenas, and treating the Fifth Amendment as a guilty plea was a witch hunt that ruined reputations. But in Alger Hiss, HUAC could point to a communist that was a spy for the Soviet Union. Hiss was convicted of perjury. Well, Alger Hiss is one person. And the committee's scope really turned from where it con- congressional committees generally are when you're looking at someone like an Alger Hiss or someone in the government um, to starting to look at the movie business. You have Harry S. Truman later as a former president in 1960 saying the House of Un-American Activities Committee is the most un-American thing. That's where the reputation reached. But the House Un-American Committee does not just exist during the 60s. We, we, during the 50s, we talked about this before. You have to look at it as a committee that stretches in the late 30s, kind of as Franklin Roosevelt's losing some political power. And he has more and more opponents in Congress and they're starting to look at, well, are these New Deal organizations connected at all with Soviet communism? Is he using Soviet-made films to support the war effort? And it's kind of easy, you know. I, I, you know, my my formative years say were eighties and nineties, right? You have this image of communism as just communists are bad, kind of like the Red Dawn movie, right? 
I think you have to adjust that a little bit to understand the times. Look at the election of 1932. So Franklin Roosevelt gets 22.8 million votes. Uh, Hoover gets 15.7 million votes. The Socialist Party under Norman Thomas gets almost a million votes, uh, about 900,000 votes. You had the communists in there. They're getting 103,000 votes. That's almost, uh, and if you add socialist, communist, and socialist labor, you're getting near a million votes there. I'll just fast forward in time to the 1980 election. Now, you know, the Communist Party's on the ballot. Gus Hall's getting 44,000 votes. Uh, to the extent there's a socialist party, you have the Socialist Workers Party. Clifton DeBerry getting 38,000 votes. Uh, just barely beating um, the uh, Ellen McCormick and the Right to Life Party and the Peace and Freedom Party of Maureen Smith. So, you know, very low relegated, but that was not the case. I mean, of course, a million is not the same as 22 million votes. That is true, but it's still significant. And in many elections, that million could be the sway. Put that in perspective. There are a lot of people who are freedom-loving Americans who are voting for these parties because they want an economic change. Hueck found very little of that communist influence they were looking for in Hollywood movies, which was their announced purpose. But yet, 212 people were read into a public record. That, of course, became a blacklist. They had the major movie uh, owners, I think, all but um, all but one, testifying before the committee that they would fire anyone who was a communist. We value freedom of speech. You know, it's almost a, do I have to make the case, but sometimes I like to just remind of a case that's, so it doesn't seem like it's just, just because it's so common in textbooks to interpret something one way, we interpret it this way. I mean, you're talking about in Hollywood, yes, it's a place that makes movies and cartoons and entertainment movies, but it's also the very center of freedom of speech. Targeting the making of movies is obviously out of scope. Who acts Appendix 9 um, in their report listed 22,000 people connected with the Communist Party, suspected. Even Huak said that those records, that was the sixth of a sixth volume, should be destroyed, never made public. Well, it wasn't publicized, but it was given to the State Department, to the Army, to the Navy, to the FBI, and found its way to certain anti-communist organizations who had these lists. Another thing about HUAC, um, it lasts until 1975. A lot of people don't kind of get that part. And it's only removed after a very organized campaign. Before its tenure's over in 75, it will be sued by a Chicago cardiologist who just takes the organization to court for years, saying that its founding is unconstitutional. It has no right to exist, and they're forced to actually settle. They drop the charges against him. He drops the civil lawsuit because he was starting to get somewhere. And it's it, right after that dropping the lawsuit is when the, the committee ends. You also t it, It's around enough to take in some of the student demonstrations. First thing you have in 1960 is where there's the first organized protest against the House on American Activities in 1960 at Berkeley. And... Protesters are given the fire hose treatment. In 1966, 11 student leaders are named, 
And there is outrage, letters to newspapers saying this is the same as the Red Scare of the 50s. You're just taking these student leaders. Jerry Rubin, uh, Abby Hoffman, they're targeted by the House Un-American Committees. Famously, uh, I forget which one of them, but one of them testifies in a Santa suit. I mean, you're beginning to see the end of the House Un-American Committees when they're starting to go after people like student protesters that cannot be shamed by the committee. And some of them, you know, at least in the, in the late 60s, were giving up on income anyway. So why would they care if their reputation was, quote, ruined? It's a much more potent body in the 50s, but it still exists going into the 70s. I think it's an important thing to realize that we don't just have a HUAC that's around the time of McCarthy. You know, McCarthy's in the Senate, but careful coordination. We have a uh, House on American Committees that goes from the late 30s to the mid-70s. We know the story of the 1876 disputed Tilden Hayes election. Less known is the congressional committee that followed all that. Now, I'm not talking about the congressional uh, joint special committee that brokered the deal between Democrats and Republicans and counted the vote essentially for Hayes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the Potter Committee. And it takes place years after the 1876 election. Hayes is already in office. He's the president. Democrats are none too happy about it because they feel that election they were robbed. Tilden should have been president. And Democrats control the House of Representatives. And there are now, by the time you're getting to 1878, some confessions of people involved in the elections, particularly Florida and Louisiana, bringing the issue up again. Now, why would Republicans who might have been involved in switching votes in vote returning boards in these states, why would they turn against their party? The reason seems to be that in, in, in these cases, they were passed up for job opportunities that they may have been promised. This, this comes out in the press and their calls for Congress to investigate, particularly in the House. Democrat Clarkson Potter is a neighbor of Samuel Tilden a supporter of him. He calls for an investigation. The Democrats want to vote to hold that. Republicans refuse to vote, and they do something that they could do at this time. You can't do this anymore. They left the chamber to forestall a committee. But eventually, eventually, the motion is approved, 146 to 2. And the committee's given to Potter. It's not an impartial committee by any means. As a Republican, they have Benjamin Butler. He didn't like Hayes very much. He would turn to a Democrat later and run as a greenback and a Democrat later. But the committee takes over 200 witnesses. In Florida, Samuel McLinn on the returning board confessed that he was lured by Republican promises of a job to act not according to his duties. He was appointed a judge by Hayes, but it was rejected by the Senate. He would have been a judge in the New Mexico Territory. Now he testified that he turned, essentially, a Tilden lead in votes in that state to a Hayes one. Potter calls Samuel Tilden. Um, then uh, James Anderson of Louisiana testified that he had been encouraged to throw out Tilden ballots by John Sherman of Ohio now Treasury Secretary, one of Hayes' friends. So this reaching up to the president now. 
Sherman assures him, he said, that Hayes would not forget loyal Republicans. They decide that's not enough, so they want a note from Sherman. And Sherman writes a note saying, you will be provided for. Oh, this is damning evidence. Really damning. And for a lot of Democrats that have been seething all along, you know, like imagine after the 2000 election. I mean, there's still people that are mad about the 2000 election. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, that's a hotly disputed one. Imagine if you have things that come out that, you know, uh, the person says, oh, I turned the election. That's what's happening here. Um, years later. Now, but you have to look at this letter, the note. Uh, first of all, there is no written note. It's only a note referred to. Anderson can't find it. So we only know that um, John Sherman possibly said something to Anderson. Sherman's cagey about it in his testimony. He's later going to deny it. But he didn't know whether there was a note or not. So Sherman sort of incriminates himself by not exactly denying it and then denying it later once it was known that Anderson couldn't produce a written note that he had said, you will be provided for. Here's the problem, though, with you will be provided for, though. Anderson had been saying that this is Reconstruction, Louisiana. The Redeemers want to take over. Um, Another Republican, significant one, was killed, shot in the head, broad daylight. Anderson's a little scared. He's like, if I'm doing this for you, you know, I want to be provided for it. So it's, you will be provided for it. You could interpret it as Sherman saying, if you just do your normal Republican duty and the votes come out for us, we'll, you're going to be provided for your loyal Republicans. He didn't, there's no quid pro quo is the best way to say it. But that's not, <laughs> that's, that's cool comfort for the newspapers. You know, Southern newspapers, particularly um, Democratic newspapers north, are calling for Hayes' impeachment. Then Anderson's note to Sherman, in other words, the one he wrote to Sherman, is questioned even by um, a member of the committee who doesn't like Hayes very much, Benjamin Butler. Benjamin Butler's like, it looks like two different pencils were used to write that note. No, Anderson says, I sharpened my pencil. Hmm. The press had a field day with that one. So you go back and forth. The New York Herald says, unfortunately, all the Democrats could produce was a drunken deadbeat for their claims. Here's the thing. While there were some calls to impeach Hayes, nobody wanted to revisit that bloody feud of 1876 or mess with the result that the Congressional Commission came up with. And this I find neat is that during this vote, um, the Republican introduces a bill to prevent the House from overturning the last election. It passes even with Democrat support. Potter's being told by some of his friends, this committee's making you look like a bitter partisan. And then it gets worse. Then it gets worse. Since we've opened up the 1876 election, we're going to look at everything. And now they start examining some of the telegraph companies, telegrams, lots of them. And some of them had been unopened by the previous Congressional Commission who didn't have time. And they find that William Pellin, who is Samuel Tilden, the Democratic candidate's nephew, had written telegrams to people in Florida trying to get them to turn their votes. It's right there in the telegrams. Well, they are written in code. 
and they get the Naval Observatory, they get a top code breaker to break the code. Pellin admits it. Now, this is Tilden's nephew. Now, Tilden says, I want to speak to this committee. So he goes down, and now we have a former presidential candidate, Samuel Tilden, the loser of the last election. Um, by the way, it was settled. Comes down to Congress, testifies absolutely nothing to do with this. Um, he invokes God and all of this stuff that, yes, it was his nephew. Yes, his nephew was living at his home. Yes, some of these telegrams went to his home. But I had no knowledge of it. Yeah, you can't find a committee that backfired any more than the intentions of the Potter Congressional Committee, I believe. Um, intended to go one way, it actually made Samuel Tilden look very bad, cast a lot of doubt on the Democrats' claim that they had in a lot of American minds to the presidency. And they, 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 it, the actions of the nephew didn't really change the presidential election. It was an attempt. Uh, but still, cast a lot of dirt on it and uh, hurt Samuel Tilden and his chances to become president again. As we said, in 1949, the American Municipal Association, group that represents 10,000 cities, asked Congress, please investigate organized crime activity in our cities. After a turf battle between two committees and a tight vote in the Senate as to who would lead this, they decide on Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver. He was in his first term as a senator from Tennessee. He's very young. They figure that this committee will study the problem sort of bury it in a report. They put the Kefauver Committee on television and the committee travels around to 14 different cities and 30 million Americans tune in. People watching this religiously, it's it's actually boosting sales of TV sets. Town reports that their local blood centers not getting any blood donations until they install a TV so the blood donors can watch the Kefauver Committee's Kefauver said his committee was a national crusade, a great debating forum, an arouser of public opinion on the state of the nation's morals. In the end, he produced an 11,000-page report. He helped spotlight mob influence in Las Vegas, the connection between the mob and the political machines. The FBI was forced to admit that a mob exists during these committee hearings. He doesn't really get any legislation. He tries to. He tries to. He doesn't get any le legislation. Las Vegas is forced eventually to make a few changes, but um, the Kefauver Committee in and of itself doesn't really shake up the mob necessarily, but does spotlight it. I mean, it's going to be 20 years later before you get something like the RICO statute, but at least it gets rid of it as a, oh, that's all baloney, any talk about crime being organized like that. It's just individuals committing crime. You know, no, that That is changed in the public opinion with the Kefauver Committee. But Kefauver, there's also some issues, you could say, with what he does. He clearly, uh, a year after these hearings, runs for president full force, writes a book, based on the findings, nearly gets the nomination from the Democrats in 1952. Uh, Truman 
is among those who stop him and advocate for Adelaide Stevenson as an alternative. He feels that Keefe offers grandstanding, hurts some of Truman's friends and political allies. Well, I can't answer that. I don't know. can't remember back now. This is three months. You can't remember three months ago whether Johnny Deal was in your room, the man who's under indictment for throwing acid in Victor Rizal's eyes? I cannot remember whether he was or not, as I said it. You know, we can't not mention the McClellan hearings. And in some ways, they could be considered an extension of both the Kefauver hearings and the McCarthy hearings, the, the hearings on communism, because Robert Kennedy's involved in both. I mean, Ken, Robert Kennedy gets his start as a counsel on McCarthy's committee. He's friendly, as is Jack Kennedy, as is Joseph Kennedy, too, with Joseph McCarthy. They're both Catholics. Um, they're anti-communists. There's a lot going on in that complicated relationship. It's a negative one seen through the lens of history. Um, you know, and, and both Kennedys suffer a bit for it. But there was a relationship. It should be said that Robert Kennedy also, as Democratic Minority Counsel on McCarthy's committee, was part of a walkout where McClellan and other senators walked out. Also had a role in going up against Roy Cohn, who was the um, committee counsel selected by McCarthy and Kennedy source responsible for going way too far. So there's a lot there in that in that relationship. It it really is a, a whole podcast onto itself. Um, but it should be said that Robert Kennedy, after working on some various committees as a counsel, he was not an elected uh, official at this time. It was that period of time, and I just don't recall. You can't remember what you talked about, and you can't remember what it, whether he was it in wouldn't your have room. been of anything of any importance, Mr. Kennedy, and I can't recall it. What about the, when did you last talk to him on the telephone? I'll tell you in a minute. I'm trying to fix the date for you. Somewhere after July. Joins um, Senator John McClellan's hearing, um, and he's a senator from Arkansas, examining labor unions and racketeering. And particularly they settle on the Teamsters, although they look at a number of them. And eventually they're going to find that David Beck, who's president of the Teamsters at the time, gave himself the equivalent of a million-dollar loan, and others the equivalent of another nine millions to other uh, to other union members. But it's really going to get nasty between himself and the next president of the Teamsters, the rival to Beck, Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, you have been uh, very friendly with him since 1953? I have known him, yes. And you've been friendly with him? Friendly acquaintance, yes. Uh, he turned to you in this hour of need, called you long distance in Detroit, to ask you if you'd take care of his family. No, he didn't ask me that at all. Were you one of his closest friends, Mr. Dean? I wouldn't say that, no. I think he said, would you look out? I don't know how he phrased it, but to some extent, would I look out and see if everything is all right for us? Well, I think if somebody's in trouble and they're going to go to their close <laughs> friend to find out if they're going to take care of their family, was that the position that you had with Mr. Dean? That is not. 
You did not. That is not the position I had with him. Yeah. That you... I should take care of his family. Uh, when, how many times have you talked to him in the last few months? McClelland and Robert Kennedy don't want to stop. Hoffa is going to prove difficult to prosecute. It's going to take. It's going to take Robert Kennedy going into the Attorney General's office to get him prosecuted, and this is going to be um, a feud that will impact the lives of both. Kennedy loses. You know, he gains some in that he becomes um, where you can make an argument for him becoming Attorney General when his brother gets the presidency. But he's also seen by many, particularly labor supporters, some of Democrats in his in his own party, in his brother's party, see him as badgering, being too tough on labor. There's criticism of these hearings that they just don't see labor's point of view. Anyone testifying is guilty. Any labor union is guilty of being connected to organized crime. What about connections between business and organized crime, which had been present as well? There was very little investigation of that. What about business practices around shutting down labor unions, not allowing them to have votes? Very little investigation of that. So there's, so the Kennedy Committee, which really becomes Kennedy Hoffa Show, widely criticized, um, but also doing some important work, setting up later prosecutions that will happen. Other moments in congressional hearings. Frank Church's committee in the late 70s revealing that the FBI and CIA in, from the 50s to the 70s had looked at U.S. mail without the post office knowledge, had tapped phone lines, this time with cooperation of various phone companies, had uh, had a list of phone calls made and telegrams sent. You know, leads to successful legislation, FISA legislation, to uh, add some controls to this legislation. Let me ask you first, and I'd like to just go down the row. Um, 1994. The hearing on the regulation of the tobacco products with the CEOs of Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds, U.S. Tobacco, Liggett Groups, and Brown and Williamson, and American Tobacco. Let me uh, begin my questioning on the matter of uh, whether or not nicotine is addictive. Let me ask you first, and I'd like to just go down the row, uh, whether each of you believes uh, that nicotine is not addictive. I heard virtually all of you touch on it, and just yes or no. Do you believe nicotine is not addictive? I believe nicotine is not addictive, yes. Mr. Johnson. Uh, Congressman, cigarettes and nicotine clearly do not meet the classic definitions of addiction. There is no intoxication. We'll, We'll take that as a no, and again, time is short. If you could just, I think each of you believe nicotine is not addictive. We just would like to have this for the record. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. I believe nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. And I too believe that nicotine is not addictive. All raise their hands and swear that tobacco is not addictive. It would be a matter of years before all these statements are conclusively proven to be absolutely ridiculous and that the executives had knowledge that they were outright lying. This is an important moment. And it, it's one that shows you how powerful a congressional committee can be. But it's also a little bit, it's also a little bit extracurricular, right? And I think this is the thing to think about with, with congressional hearings. There's so many of them. It's such an important part of the Congress's business. And when you hand that gavel over to one party or the other, you are handing investigatory powers. And that's something to consider. It's something that, that is another reason for parties to take elections seriously 
but a few patterns emerge. It's clear in most cases that that extra purposeful or extracurricular, let's say, fringe element of these committee hearings are often more important than the hearings. It's not about that 500-page report, although some of those can generate some good information. Maybe prosecutors, legislators, or mayors and presidents can use later in deciding what to do next. But it's rarely those moments. It's kind of the gotcha moments on television that seem to often have the most impact. You know, scope of investigation is important. Why are you doing investigation at the time? We talked a lot about Kefauver. There were criticisms of Kefauver and that committee that it was nativist. In other words, they were targeting people particularly that were Italian or other minorities or other immigrant groups and questioning their patriotism and also trying to draw a line between the more immigration you allow, the more of organized crime you're going to have, as if none of it would be generated domestically, and it could be solved by closing immigration loopholes. The questioning of Costello about his patriotism, in addition to the questioning about what he did, you know, just kind of shines a light on that. We see a lot of that. Uh, Does this mean Congress shouldn't investigate? Does this mean we should ignore investigations as viewers? I don't think so. Does this mean that congressional committees should be held like the Joint Committee and the of the conduct of the war during the Civil War in a secret room. And they should just do their work and issue a report and they shouldn't publicize anything. I don't think so either. Uh, Here's the reason why I don't think so. Should it only be the news media or other politicians that control a narrative? Doesn't Congress have a right to speak? And when Congress speaks, shouldn't it speak in an informed way as a result of an investigation? Should the news media be the only thing that determines the sway of the country? I think in the real world, publicizing these committees is essential. Can it go overboard? I absolutely think it can. Should voters always be aware that what they're watching is not a group of people in robes, but a group of politicians elected? That does, it would be too simplistic to say that means you ignore them all the time. I don't think you just, I, I hate when people generalize and just say, these are just a bunch of lying politicians. You know, that's not what I mean. That being said, they are politicians. So what do you do? As a voter, I think it's important to judge what they have. What's the evidence? What have they brought up? I want to say in the outset, something like, say, the January 6th hearings, I mean, absolutely needed to be done. There's no way you can have that scale of an incident at the Capitol where the Congress is meeting during an important event like that. And um, Vice President's life is threatened. Speaker's office is ransacked. uh, uh, So many other things and not investigated. That doesn't mean there isn't a point or two where I may say, well, are you taking some points at political opponents? You also have to look at if that's what the evidence brings up, it's what the evidence brings up. Um, we've seen through this little bit of history, and there's a lot, so I couldn't possibly talk about all of them, but you see things like the Potter Committee, where they thought it was going one place, and the sword was turned back on that committee, um, and that's always a possibility. Committees can do their best to control the public interpretation of their presentation, but they can't control it completely, and there's always the possibility of backlash, too. Um, I think in what's going on now, Y'all, any honorifics assigned to one committee could be now used by another later. So that's why it's essential that you're always keeping in mind 
But this is still a, a political group, which is merely look at the evidence they have. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com.